0: As we read, just read from 1 John 4, 14 through 16, that's what we'll be looking at today together. It is great to be with you on this Christmas Eve, Eve. I don't know about you, uh, but our kids have been, we've been doing Eves for like days now, like Eve, 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 Eve. Um, and uh, we've been trying to get one present here, one present there. I keep telling them yes, but their mother says no, so there's that. Um <clears throat> But it is, it is great, and it's always such an exciting time of year to be together, um, to be here, and to hear from God's Word. And so this morning, in the text that we just read, um, it's, there's this, the, the essence of what Christmas is. And this, this week, as I was preparing, uh, <clears throat> I came across a devotional, and I thought, wow, he said it perfect. I, I want to say it like that on Sunday morning, and then so I started trying to figure out how I could say it, and then I just quit and I'm going to read you what I read because it's, I think, that good. So here, the essence. And this is in light of the angels singing. It says, it is a wonderful, mysterious, hard to grasp and beyond the scope of our normal reasoning story. But when you get it, when you come to, under, to fully understand the purpose and implications of this story, you will sing too. The story's amazing plot wasn't written when Mary got pregnant or when the prophets began foretelling it, when God announced it after the disastrous rebellion of Adam and Eve. This story is so miraculous in every way that it could have only come out of the mind of God in eternity before the foundations of the earth were laid down by his mighty hand. It points to the divine imagination and screams the power of the divine hand. No man could write this plot, and if he did, no man could expedite what he had written. This story is itself an argument for the existence of God. It is a portrait of his holy character. The beautiful world that God had created was now broken and groaning. The direct result of rebellion of the ones God had made in his very own image. And it placed his guiding and providing love upon The evidence of its brokenness was everywhere, everywhere from the inner recesses of the heart of people to the violence and corruption of government to the existence of plagues and diseases. Sure, there was a beauty still to be seen, but the whole world groaned under the weight of its brokenness. It would have been just for God to stay his distance, to let the world quake and groan. It would have been a just response to the arrogant rebellion that brought this brokenness on the world But in one of the gorgeous mysteries of God's sovereign grace, he looked on his broken, rebellious world with eyes of mercy. Yes, God would act decisively, and his actions would be what he had planned in the beginning. But they would be a stunning surprise to every mere mortal. His response would not be condemnation and judgment. His response would not be a a meeting out of justice. Rather, his response would be intervention and rescue. He would do in grace what the law could never do. He, would do. he would do in grace what we could never do for ourselves. He would do what philosophers could never conceive, what leaders could never strategize, what poets could never imagine. He would offer the only thing that would ever address the need and solve the problem. He himself would become the greatest, most costly, most transformational gift ever. God would take on human flesh and invade his sin-broken world with his wisdom, power, glory, and grace. But he would descend to a plate. He wouldn't descend to a palace. Instead, the Lord Almighty, the Creator, the Sovereign King, over all things, would humble himself and take on the form of a servant. <clears throat> he would live on our behalf the life we could have never lived. He would willingly die the death that you and I deserve to die. And he would rise from his tomb as the conqueror of sin and death. He would suffer every single day of his life so that he could, with his life, give grace to rebels, extend love to those who would deny his existence, impart wisdom to those who think they know better, and extend forgiveness to everyone who seeks him. His coming stands as an affirmation that he will not relent He will not be satisfied until sin and suffering are no more. And we are like him, dwelling with him in unity, peace, and harmony forever and ever. This is the story of Christmas. See, the big story of Christmas is the story of the everlasting father displaying his love for us by coming to extend his arms of redeeming love to all who would give their hearts to him. And in, as we read in the passage in 1 John, um, the book of 1 John was written basically in this sense. There were people about 50 years after Jesus had lived that had decided that it wasn't real. Jesus hadn't really come. He hadn't really done these things. And they began to be skeptics. And so The book of 1 John was really written to skeptics, people who kind of pushed away the notion of Jesus and what he'd done. So John writes, and he says, oh, no, I've touched him, I've seen him, I saw this, let me tell you, it happened. Now, you may think, well, we've come far beyond them, there's very few skeptics in our world today. But I believe that in this room alone, there's notions in our minds, is this thing real? Is God real? Has all of this happened? Is, there, is this story of Christmas something quaint and something that we just sort of run through the motions of, or is there a deeper story, what we read here from Paul Tripp? Is the story of Christmas uh, the most profound story of God's love ever told? Is the story of God's redemptive history real and true? So 1 John was written, right, this verification, eyewitness, Jesus came, he is real. The reality, um, he he has really called us to something that brings love, joy, peace, and life, and that we can have confidence in his grace. So before we walk through the passage, see, this text is really about love. It's about the love of God that he has for us. But love, I, I bet you I could do this, I'm not sure, some of you are really... Some of you are tougher than I think, but I think I could do this. I think I could make everybody in this room cry today. And I think I could do it by talking about love. Because love, right, not in the Hallmark movie sense of love, um, which is fantastic. I like that kind of love. Uh, It's just very happy, right? Um, Yeah. And so um, I, I love it that this year I actually have a child that makes fun of them with me. So it's fun. So, so this is how we pull on our heartstrings of love. Have Have you ever had someone in whom you'd entrusted, like some sort of faith in, like you'd given yourself over to, and they didn't come through for you? I think in each of us we have a deep longing to be loved, and many of our stories are stories where we weren't loved well. And we could go back in time in history, which I'm not going to do. This is supposed to be a happy morning, right? We go back in time in history and we could walk through our lives and this relationship, that relationship, and someone that just wasn't there. See, one of the commonalities in this room is every person, I don't care how tough you are, every person in this room wants to be loved. And much, most of the pains and hurts in our lives are where someone didn't come through that was supposed, that had committed, that was going to love us. See, love is something that each and every one of us deeply desire, we deeply want. It's embedded in every story. Love is something that we desire. So this text talks about love. And I believe the most profound love, and by the way, every person in this world is going to fail you in some regards to love. I love my wife, and she loves me. We celebrated 16 years of marriage um, on Friday, and uh, I, I, can't, I, I can't imagine what my life would be without her in my life. She does more for this body, for, for me, for the movement of God, for all kinds. Debbie is an incredible person, but Debbie... Me and her. That there is only an end of what our love can be for one another. Whether it's my family, parents, whatever. There's only an end. I believe that in each and every one of us, there's only one place where love can be filled, and that's our God. And so, as we look at this text, there's two things that we're going to simply pull out of it. And the first is that the love of God is available. The love of God is available. <clears throat> Now, even in that statement, I just want to say this on the front end. I would guess that if you're at, if you're here on a Sunday morning, this is a very expected statement to be made in a church service on Christmas Eve. Eve. <laughs> I should have said the eve of Christmas. Anyway, So the love of God is available. <clears throat> I believe that is profoundly true for each and every one of us. And I believe that if it's something that we sort of shrug off to the side of something that we know, maybe we don't know it as much as we think we do. Because I do believe that it's one of the most profound statements that could ever be said is that the love of God is available. And it's what this text says. So it says, God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And we have seen and testify that the Father, right? He says, I was there, I saw, I testified to this, that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And so in this, we see past tense, God has sent. It's a past event, it happened. God did this work, it is completed, right? God has sent, but it's possessive. God has sent His Son. Right, Jesus, he's unique. He's one of a kind. There's none like him. He is the only son of God. Jesus isn't just some other mere man. Jesus is the God-man in flesh come on earth. Why did he come? Well, it speaks of intent. He came to be the savior of the world. Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. But what is this thing that we need saved from? We need saved from sin. Other words that describe what sin is in scripture is bondage and slavery. That which we tie ourselves to that will not come through for us in this world and in this life. Bondage and slavery, sin. Another way of saying he saves us sometimes just simply from our very own selves and our own devices and our own hopes and our own wants. And our dreams apart from him. So, the declaration in this text is the love of God is available. So, the text continues and talks about this availability. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, <clears throat> this confession thing. Um, this confession thing confesses. There's two ways to look at confession. When we typically talk about confession of sin, it's sort of like when we talk about confession in general. It's sort of this like nail biting. I've got to tell something that I don't want to tell anyone, right? And so, a verse in Scripture it says Proverbs 28:13: Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, that's not the sense that this passage is talking about, but, but I want to talk about this for a second, this confession of sin. There, there's universal principles in the scriptures that just prove to be true in life. Um, one of those is that this world is fading, it's a mist, it's a sigh, it's a vapor, it's here one minute, gone the next. We know that to be true. Everything in this world is transient, the scriptures say, that, that, that nothing lasts. Has anyone ever experienced that kind of nothing lasts in this world, you know? Why is that, that beautiful Christmas sweater you bought 35 years ago? worn to ugly christmas sweater. So like events. Like what what is this, right? Because trends are changing. Everything is fading. Nothing lasts. Clothes don't last. Houses don't last. Cars don't last. Nothing lasts in this world. There is universal principles that are just simply true of life. Well, in this text in Proverbs 28:13, it's tr- it's just a true statement. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes him will obtain mercy. So this is speaking of like this confession, this confession that I've done wrong, that I've gone wrong. So this works out in my house like this often. If you conceal your sin in my home, you will not prosper. That's how this works. And so how this works out is, is that, that, that and, and it's evident, right? It happens all the time with, with, with children. And it's not true in my house. It's true just in life, right? That, that my children, they'll say, hey, and it's totally evident that they, that the, child at hand, did what was wrong. Say, did you do this? And where do they go? No. So you didn't do boom. You didn't do that. And you didn't do this. No, no. Right? And so what happens? A lot of not prospering for the next 20 years of their life, right? Like that's their punishment. And it happens. But it's, it's true for kids and it's true for each and every person in this room. <clears throat> there, there are some who've come into this room today And you are concealing something and it is killing you. You're concealing it from your spouse. You're concealing it from maybe people at work. Maybe it's something you've been concealing for a long time. And you may be prospering on the outside, but on the inside you are dying. Whoever conceals his sin says will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy and so what the scripture is saying in confession of sin is that it may be really hard to confess it but if you confess it you will be set free and you will receive the mercy of God. Now with confession comes consequences. But I know this to be true even in my own life that even in the consequences of confession of sin the mercy is far better than the consequences. I'll say that again the mercy of God is far better than the consequences of concealing. So there's this kind of negative side, like this this kind of confession, this kind of, I've done something false or wrong. But then there's this true confession. And this true confession is what this text is speaking on. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 10.9 says it like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved so these are words that are, that are speaking of this confession of, of, of believing what we've seen in two baptisms this morning. We had one of the first, here's in the second, this confession of saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he is of worth and of value. I believe that he has given me worth of my I believe that God is who he says he is. I believe that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Now these aren't some sort of like genie kind of formulaic words that you can say because people can say all kinds of words and not mean them. anybody with me on that, right? But these are words of saying truly in my heart, I believe, confidence, confess that Jesus is the son of God, my God. So he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, right? So the text continues. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and to believe in the love that God has for us. So the text, right, continues. We have come to know the love God has for us. We've experienced, we've seen, we've tasted, we've touched. This is a reality in my life. We have come to believe the love God has for us. It's a present reality of it in my life. So how this works out is this, the the love of God, how do we know it? Well, if you've experienced God's grace, you realize how incredibly gracious God has been. Because what do each and every one of us deserve? We deserve punishment for our sin. But God loved us so much that he put the punishment that was due us on him so that we might have life. We see the graciousness of God in our life. We see the kindness of God in our life, right? Undeserved. Undeserved. We see how tender-hearted God has been, how relentless in his pursuit he has been. And so in response, what does that cause us to do? Well, this text says, and we'll get more into it in a second, it says that I reciprocate this kind of graciousness. And I reciprocate this kind of kindness. And I reciprocate this kind of tender-heartedness and long-suffering and patience. Why? Because God has displayed this to me when I was so undeserving of it in my own life. So the love of God is available. It's a present reality for us in our lives. Right? The love of God is available to those who confess, who place their faith in God. And that's the big point of this. And so the first part of this section is, is simple. The love of God is available to all but only, only is, is active, is only felt, is only experienced in those who confess him as Lord, place their faith in him. So faith simply faith is this. Faith is the ability to, to, faith in the one who has the ability to come through. So we spoke of this a moment ago, that we place faith all the time in people in life. But in this, what we're speaking of is, does God, does God have the ability to come through for you? Do you believe that? So a simple way of saying it would be, has God, does God, or will God come through? And do you believe that he has the ability to do so? Has God, does God, will God come through? And I'll simply say this, on the authority of God's word and, the authority of my, and, and on the authority of my own experience, which the first has greater than the latter, God will come through. But it doesn't always seem like it, does it? There're certain things in my life that were very and have been very challenging to accept. There are things that have happened and gone on that sometimes make you go, does God come through? See, when we talk about our kids, we go 11, 8 and 4. And what you don't know is that there's a gap between that 8 and 4 of a little boy we lost. and that was a really really hard season of life where was god in that does he love us if he if he loved us wouldn't we have a family of 6 my brother died of cancer at 45 it's pretty short couldn't have he given him a little more life And when we think about life, and that's just, those are the really heavy, hard things. But there's a lot of other things that just don't seem to go right. God really loved me. Why did it take until I was 21 and then I had to live all those years of all those regrets? Why didn't he just grab me when I was younger and fix all this stuff so I didn't live in that rebellion with all those regrets? Anybody have regrets in the room? Anybody? You guys are bad people. And so, uh, <laughs> knew it. And so, uh, just kidding. It's a joke. Lighten up. Uh no, we, we have all these things, and we say, Where's, where are you in all this? Here's the thing, just simple of it. This world is incredibly broken at its very core. In sin, death, illness, disease, brokenness, it's everywhere. And, and we're never going to escape it. So if you're looking for heaven on earth, you can have it in your soul with Jesus, but that's only going to come when he returns again. And when he returns again, there will be no more sickness. There will be more, no more death. There will be no more uh, plagues and disease and all of these things. He will set all things right. But today, we live in the midst of brokenness. But God, he loves us. And he has come through. Say, so Ryan, how can you speak so definitively on that? Well, he's come through on the very core of what we need. We need the forgiveness of our sins. We need to be set right in relationship with the God who made us and he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into this world and he died. He was brutally beaten. He was crucified to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. He laid in a tomb. He rose from the dead. He's defeated sin, death, death. And hell and if we confess him with our mouth we can accept his love and his grace into our lives and we can be set right with God and he will give us what we need in the trials and struggles of life and he will come through even in the hard things and one day he will come through forever anybody with me this morning on this when Jesus is the object of our faith and our full confidence can be placed in him this is when we experience the fullness of his salvation in the life that he intends for us, in the depths of our souls, in the struggle of our present reality. We can trust him. We can place our faith in him for salvation and for life in him. second thing that we see in the text is the love of God is persistent. The love of God is persistent. And when I say persistent, I mean this long and enduring. His love is Persistent says, the text continues, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what the text is doing is it's saying basically this, that God is love, right? God is love. Um, whoever abides in love abides in God. And so love and God are one in the same. Now, what I just said about God and what he has done for us is his ultimate display of his love. God doesn't have to do one more thing in this world to prove his love for you or me. He has proved it in coming to earth and giving his son for us, final. God's love has been fully displayed through his son. His actions have already spoken. His love is available. And so it says, whoever abides in love abides in God. So when you abide in his love, his sacrifice for us right? You abide in him. When you recognize that he has made a way when there was no other way for us, and he has connected us to the Holy One, to the God of the universe, that he indwells us with his very own presence in the power of his Holy Spirit, and he makes us a servant of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, God has brought salvation. He, he can bring us to a place of faith, And he leads us to a life of love. And that's what this text kind of says. And so whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So the fruit of an abiding relationship is a loving pursuit by God and by us. This is a a mutual pursuit of one another. When I pursue God, right, in his abiding love, what does he promise? That I will abide back in you. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever met a Christian that you felt like, man, that guy is a total hypocrite. Raise your hand if you've ever met anybody like that. You guys are judgmental too. And so, uh, right, this is like the knock of Christianity, right? It's like the knock of, of like, oh man, like I'd be a Christian, but that dude, those people, that church, these, they do this and they do that. And honestly, it's true. Like you can't run from that or hide from that. You don't think I know about it? I'm a pastor. I know these people way better than you do. You know the things that have been said about me, the way people treated me? You'd think they wouldn't, but they do. And I'm not above hypocrisy. Has there been things in my life that I've said or done that I I wish I could turn back time and not say or not do? Not really. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. We should just pray. And so... uh, (laughs) No, it it is true. It is true. And and it is true. I mean, I believe that when the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Galatians, he writes about the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. Read through the fruits of the flesh in Galatians 5. From from what I can tell in time and history, most of those sins happen in the context of churches. Jealousy, rivalry, envy. The book of First John was written saying, live this thing out, be genuine in your love, abide in God, let his love abide in you so that when people see you, they see him. It's a call to, to living an authentic Christian life, not a life of hypocrisy. The scripture is clear, right? Who gets called out? The Pharisees, the scribes, those who act like they have something together, but they have nothing together. But our issue isn't looking at people. Well, our issue is looking at people. We shouldn't look at people because people will never guide us to truth. But God, when we look at him, we will see who he truly is. So the text says, whoever abides in love abides in God. When we look at his love, when we see the extent of the love of the Father toward us, when we gaze upon him, what happens What happens is he and us, and as we have this mutual pursuit of one another, by the way, the love of God is persistent. God is in pursuit of you. He is in pursuit of your life. And he has been for a very, very, very long time. You can resist it. I have known. I have known that resistance in my own life. I always talked about it like I was, I was just walking away from God. And, and finally, when I turned around and saw him, right, I stopped turning my back from him. Caught a gaze of who he is. Nothing has ever been the same. And some of you, maybe today, need to stop, stop running and just turn and see him, his love for you. But I believe for this abiding relationship to happen, I think there's three simple practices that will lead us in this. And these three simple practices are, are things that, that I, th- I think for a Christian to experience the love of God in their life, it isn't something that just magically happens, right? It's a mutual pursuit. And so the first thing that, that I believe has to happen in that is first is intimate prayer and positional prayer. I believe that God has opened a pathway for us to commune with him in an abiding relationship with God. what happens in that is intimate prayer. And that is simply just saying, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. It's a perpetual position underneath God of praising him, thanking him, recognizing him as he is. And then the second is positional prayer. And that's sort of what intimate prayer does, is it puts us rightly, right, Here is us and here is God. And what we have a tendency to do is try to kind of elevate ourselves above God or tell God what to do or how things should be. But positional prayer is placing myself under him. And just simply saying, God, you are God and I am not. I recognize that you have authority, you have rule, you have reign, and I come underneath your authority in my life. And I believe that a person that abides in God has an intimate prayer life and a positional prayer life second thing that is helpful in this abiding relationship with God, not just helpful, essential, it's, it's the Bible, God's word. That God's word is, is not something optional in our life, but our very guide of how to live underneath his story. The, the word of God is, is the revelation of who God is to us. And so as we read God's word, his very breath to us, we, we read it. And not only do we read it, but we meditate upon it, right? We, we think about it, that, that it's on our minds, that, that his word is something that, that not only we meditate, but we memorize. And as we memorize it, we meditate and we read it. But his word is the, the light into our path, a, a guide for us in life, that, that his word it comes to the place of, of, of placing his authority in the right place. So intermittent prayer, the, the Bible, and then the third is the Holy Spirit. And I believe the first two work in unison with the third and the Holy Spirit asking that his spirit, who he has indwelt us with, would lead us, would illuminate our way and empower us to do all things for him. Because the reality is, is none of us can do any great works for God unless we are empowered by his very own spirit to do those works. So intimate prayer, God's word, his Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us to this great abiding relationship so the love of God is available. The love of God is persistent. So one of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. Um, anybody seen it? Okay. Um, some of you haven't, so I'm going to ruin it for you. And if it's ruined for you, it's been out way too long, I can. And so, um, so the story of It's a Wonderful Life is this man named George Bailey. And George Bailey... Um, is a great man in all senses. He, he helps others. He is always the one who will jump in the water and save his little brother, dive into the building and loan to save it from utter ruin over and over and over again. He's there for the neighbors and all the people in the community. George Bailey is a, a great man. But the villain of the story is the name Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter is this kind of old curmudgeon, Right? And this old curmudgeon kind of is always, you know, hoarding money and wealth. And, you know, George Bailey says that he doesn't even have a soul, like he's always calling fire out. But at the end of the movie, there's this discrepancy of about $8,000 from Uncle Billy. He's lost the money. And George finally has to go in and grovel at the feet of Mr. Potter. And he grovels to Mr. Potter, will you just help me? And Mr. Potter finally gets his wish that the building, the building and loan, the business is going to close down and he mr potter gives george bailey a lecture and the lecture goes something like this he says you have been miserable your whole life in this little town of bedford falls you don't like where you live everyone else has surpassed you you had all these dreams and you achieved none of them and it's a revelation into the heart of really what george bailey was he was bitter He did all kinds of good things, but he felt like he'd been dealt a bad hand. And underneath him was boiling a little bit of anger throughout the whole movie, and you see it as the story unfolds. And so what happens is he goes and he meets this angel named Clarence on a bridge. And the theology gets a little weird with the whole stars talking to each other and Clarence and wings and whatever. And so, but it's okay because it's a Christmas movie and we just disregard these things at Christmas time. And so... um, And so... So, so Clarence comes and he says, you know, George Bailey says, I wish I never would have lived. In, in Clarence. George says, I wish I never would have lived. And Clarence takes him up on it and shows him all these things that how the world would be different and the impact he's made in life and whatever. But, but in the end of all this, uh, George, George Bailey finally says, I, 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 I wish I never would have wished that. I want to live. I want to see my family. To, and so all of a sudden he has this new perspective on life. And this new man, this new George Bailey, like this this different perspective he had on life is he, he began to see life rightly. and his heart, his perspective had changed. It had changed because he realized that his life was really good. And he realized that there was all kinds of good things that surrounded him. And that he, he had this like change of heart and mind. I, I believe a lot of us are, are a lot like George Bailey. And it's simply that One, we we don't see ourselves correctly. And we have some pretty glaring blind spots in our lives. And it causes us to live in ways that typically, even most people that lived around George, kind of knew that he felt like he'd gotten the shaft in his lot in life. So the question would be, what's your perspective this Christmas? Do you see your life rightly? Do you see God rightly? Do you see God as a God who has a a deep and passionate love for you and has been in a hard and relentless pursuit of you and your life? Have Have you grabbed a hold of that by confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord? Now, some of you think that when I say that, you're thinking, oh, he's calling people who have never placed their faith to him. I'm not. And I am. Do you today confess Jesus as Lord? What this text says is the love of God, the love we were made for and built for is only available through his son. And are you resting in that today? Or are you kind of like George Bailey? You got dealt a bad hand. And you just kind of live it out in these weird ways where it doesn't display God's biting Love but it just sort of displays your frustration with life. George Bailey was a good guy. And I think there's a lot of really good men and women in this room. But simply, in God's perspective, if good isn't enough. We need to be made holy. And only through the person of Jesus Christ can we be made holy and set right and have the love that we were made for through his son. So I don't know where you find yourself today. But I do believe that this Christmas, maybe this Christmas, God would cause us to reflect and pause. And when we celebrate this Christmas and we think about the son of God who came for us, that we would see the great pursuit of God's love for us. And it would cause us to reflect and respond and change and transform and do the things that we need to do to be right with him. Set our lives on a path and a course of reciprocating his abiding love in our own lives. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song to conclude our time. Father, we we love you. And Lord, we believe that you did send your one and only son into this world for us. We believe that you have made your abiding love available to us. Lord, would you help each of us today, wherever we find ourselves, to confess you, Jesus, as Lord, to turn from that which does not honor you, that is inconsistent with your word, that's inconsistent with your way, to turn and place our complete faith and trust in you and to experience your love and your care. Jesus, we thank you for the cross, we thank you for your life that you gave freely on earth for us that we might be set right and be made new. Meet us where we are today and in the next few days and help us to experience this Christmas the depths of your love for us. Or help us to respond appropriately, we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.